This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. There was a very testy start to the NATO summit now underway in Brussels. It it seems to be shaping up as Donald Trump against everyone else. He's taking on Germany and other countries for buying energy from Russia while the NATO alliance is intended to protect the West against Russia. And of course, he wants NATO countries to pony up more money saying that, as usual, the U.S. is being taken advantage of. NATO countries have a military spending target of 2% of GDP, but they also have until 2024 to reach that target. Prime Minister Trudeau has said he has no plans to double Canada's military spending. It is around 1.2% now. And in the meantime, Canada has just announced some more military commitments to NATO. And of course, this is the first time, <clears throat> excuse me, that Trump, uh, Trudeau will see Trump since the G7 summit. After that, Trump unleashed that tirade, calling him dishonest and weak. So what do you think? Are we in danger of fracturing, rupturing, or even ending the alliance that has governed the world, basically, the West, since the end of the Second World War, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-740-4740. And right now we go to Michael Tobe, who is a public affairs analyst, and David Perry, vice president and senior analyst of Canadian, the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Hi. Welcome. Okay, so uh, what is 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 this just Trump doing his thing to get what he wants, or how serious is this? Let's start with David Perry. Uh, I think it's probably both. Um, it's Trump being Trump, and as we've seen over the, the his presidency thus far, uh, you're not really sure what version of him uh, you're going to get. Sometimes he's combative, and other times he's conciliatory. Uh, but he does have a habit of uh, sticking with themes that he raised during his campaign, uh, and one of them was that America's allies needed to do more. Um, so I think that there is uh, probably uh, some actual um, real intent behind the, the things that he's saying publicly here, uh, and I'm not really sure that the other activities that the alliance has undertaken uh, are going to basically get them off of the American president's radar and his criticism about them for what they're doing in terms of sharing NATO's defensive burden. Michael? Yeah, it is Trump being Trump. I think that's fair to say, no matter whether you love or hate the president. There is a particular style he has, especially with foreign policy matters, and this is certainly one of them. So when he comes out with bluster that he has, say, against Germany, claiming that, you know, that they're totally in uh, Russia's back pocket because of economic dealings and so forth, this is the sort of thing that obviously sells very well back home in the United States, where people think he's putting America first, fighting for America's interests. He won't, you know, kowtow to anyone, whether it be democratic countries, totalitarian nations, etc. 
a lot of his support base likes it, even though it drives actually a lot of Republicans in the United States and others, including myself, up the wall when we hear lines like that, knowing full well that there's just a nature of geopolitics that goes back and forth, and Mr. Trump likes to sort of ignore it. But on the other hand, and, and David kind of alluded to it, and he's quite right, um, there are times, though, when Donald Trump says things which actually do make some sense, especially on the international scene, including here where he's sort of complaining about the fact that a lot of the NATO partners are either not moving towards or have not earmarked enough funds toward moving 2% of their GDP towards defense spending. And even though obviously they have several years to accomplish that goal, uh, Trump even came out earlier today and challenged them, saying that, well, why 2%? Why don't you go up to 4%? Using sort of the U.S.'s baseline, which is, I believe, 3.6% last year, as sort of a target for them to fulfill. If that is not met, and if there is pushback from other countries, not just Canada, but other NATO partners, that will cause more frustration. That will cause more tension during the uh, discussions, whether they be bilaterals or just at the round table. And it'll just make things very, very difficult. But again, this is what you have to deal with with Donald Trump as president. You know, expect the unexpected unexpected and never predict anything, he is always going to be unpredictable. And there are a lot of people, I mean, even dyed-in-the-wool liberals who say, actually, yes, we should be spending more, David Perry. Well, there's a couple different ways you can look at it. Uh, One is that this is an international commitment. Um, So lots of people, um, particularly uh, liberals, uh, think that Canada should honor international commitments. This is one of them, and as the Prime Minister admitted yesterday in what was actually kind of a refreshing um, bout of honesty, he said that Canada will not meet this commitment, uh, but just today, just about an hour ago, uh, we were part of the joint communique that the NATO alliance issued, which reaffirmed our commitment to reach a 2% of GDP defense spending target uh, by 2024, which both the Prime Minister's comments yesterday and the defense policy that the Prime Minister Trudeau's government published 13 months ago indicate Canada has no intention of meeting. Uh, And I think that that's a bit of a problem just in terms of whether or not um, we are credible when we sign up to these uh, types of things internationally. The more, uh, I think, from a strictly Canadian point of view, the better way to look at it is about whether or not we're spending to do the types of things that the government is asking us to do. And I think based on the last defense policy, 1.4% of GDP going towards defense, which is where Canada would get to for a brief period of time, it's worth uh, mentioning, before that share starts to decline um, after about a decade from now. Reaching that mark will allow, according to the defense policy, which was um, pretty extensively costed and validated by outside people, not just uh, uh, the government of Canada itself, that will allow us to do what the government is asking for of the Canadian military and the Canadian uh, defense department to do. So that's kind of a better way of looking at whether or not we are spending enough for our own national uh, requirements. But at the same time, uh, we are being two-faced in our commitments to NATO, on the one hand, agreeing to them, and then on the other, having absolutely no intention of following through, which isn't just a function of this government. Um, it's We have not been spending at this level since 1990. Now, uh, Canada has agreed to a new training mission in Iraq. Uh, we have troops in Latvia. There are people who are criticizing this, saying, you know, uh, uh, you know, these people can't be evacuated. Uh, they're in danger. What, what do you make of our new commitments? Michael. So I, I think, oh, sorry. Sorry, no, no problem at all. Um, 
very quickly. Uh, I think that the commitment is at least a refreshing change, if nothing else. And I don't know if David agrees with me, or even if you agree with me, Libby. It's nice to actually see Justin Trudeau do something on the international stage that will not be criticized by, well, conservatives like myself, because at least they're doing something, even if it's just training rather than boots on the ground. It's at least a bit more effective and more active, and at least changes the page a little bit or turns the page slightly in terms of the differences that we've obviously seen with my old friend and boss, Stephen Harper, versus Justin Trudeau when it comes to handling things on the international scene. So I think it actually is a positive thing to do. I know that some people are suggesting, and they're probably not wrong, that the announcement may be tied to a way to kind of change the channel when it comes to Mr. Trudeau's allegations of groping a woman in B.C. back 18 years ago. The, the reporter, the un, or now newly named reporter that we've been talking about for a while. And I think there may be some juxtaposition to that. I'm not disputing it. But if you're just going to look at the issue as itself, um, I think that actually it is a positive move forward. And I'm glad that Canada is doing at least something. Even if it's not exactly what I want, it's much better than quite frankly, what I've heard for the past few years. What do you make of this, David? Is it a good thing? And, and uh, is he putting these troops uh, in, in harm's way? I mean, more than... Uh, I would agree with uh, Michael that it is. I think it's a good move on, on his part uh, for a bunch of different reasons. I think as we've seen uh, the security of Iraq and the competency of its security institutions is something that doesn't just have a, a limited impact in that country. It's got a, a wider regional impact. It's something that the Western community and Canada in particular has cared about. Um, Canada has been invested in the, the future of Iraq security institutions to the tune of about 800 troops over the last few years. We put people on the ground doing um, training previously. This is a, a, a different iteration of it, uh, an ongoing one that's going to have a more technical focus. So I think it's it's got a, a good value there. It seems to me to be a bit uh, analogous to the type of training that we were doing when we were participating in the NATO training mission in Afghanistan, um, which we stopped in uh, 2014, of more specialized training rather than going out with special forces uh, to go out and accompany um, forces on the ground as they were conducting operations. This is, it seems like it's going to be more uh, classroom-based and higher technical skills, that type of thing. Um, but since NATO was interested in taking on this role, and Canada likes to do things with NATO where possible, that was a great fit. Uh, the fact that we're going to take on a leadership role just generally is a good thing, but particularly doing this in the, in the same context as this NATO summit where we we're inevitably going to come under fire in terms of our spending. Um, there's a, probably a pretty good political complementarity in terms of the timing there for uh, this government. Okay, uh, please hang on, Michael and David. We have to take a quick break. I'm going to give the numbers out again. I want to know what our listeners think. Should we be spending more on the military? Are you up for that? It's going to come out of your taxes. Should we be doing that? Also, are you worried that Donald Trump is just trying to torpedo the Western alliance, or is he just uh, doing all this stuff to have his way? The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740, and we'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. 
Welcome back. We are talking about the NATO summit meeting. We're talking about the state of the Western Alliance. Uh, I'm talking to David Perry, the, an analyst with the Global Affairs Institute, and Michael Tobe, who is a public affairs analyst. You know, Trump has been cozying up to some of the worst dictators in the world, saying nice things about them, and criticizing the allies he's called NATO obsolete. Do you think that he's just, you know, maybe in the mold of these isolationist uh, American, you know, that that we've seen in history? Do you think that he really wants out of this? Michael? Well, um, when it comes to things like that, Donald Trump basically, as we've, you and I have talked about and I've talked about with others, he governs by his gut. He doesn't follow any sort of a political handbook, or at least the, the visual political handbook that many people are aware of, of how you deal with other politicians, how you deal with other political leaders, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And for that reason, unfortunately, a lot of what comes out is very unique and also very controversial and very difficult to sort of understand and follow at times. When it comes to Democratic leaders, I, unfortunately, I think that he takes a lot of them for granted. He believes that there'll be fights, arguments, discussions, etc., but he probably feels in the back of his mind that everything will be resolved one way or the other, and if it's not, that's fine. He'll just keep moving on until they eventually come back to him. He basically almost literally at times wants Democratic nations and Democratic leaders to come crawling on their knees to him. Where he's trying to build bridges as of late is, you're right, is with different dictators. You know, the North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin and others, and he's trying to build those relations, I think, in many ways to sort of create a legacy project for him, to say that he was the first American president who could build these sorts of ties with different countries that have always been arguing with the U.S. or have fought against the U.S., or we've experienced in the case of the old Soviet Union, now Russia, a Cold War with other countries. He feels that for probably for his future or his legacy, that this is going to see him as being something more magnanimous than other presidents and more inspirational and more leaderly than others. Plus, as well, very quickly, he admires, to some extent, the way that yeah. some totalitarian leaders operate. You know, he has directly said when he met with Kim Jong-un, he likes the fact that people sort of stand at attention, listen to him, follow him, and he'd love to bring it into the U.S., now, in fairness, he was probably joking to some degree, but I think behind the scenes or in his private thoughts, those are the sorts of things he actually likes. The same way that when he went to France and saw a military parade, he was inspired by that, even though there are people in democratic nations who look at things like that and sort of shudder when they think about it. Mr. Trump believes that this would be a, a wonderful thing to bring into the United States because it probably fits with his model of what a leader should like. And again, this doesn't mean that Donald Trump is going to press a red button and launch a nuclear weapon anytime soon. I'm not suggesting anything like that. And there are good things that Mr. Trump has done as president, including for the U.S. economy. But when you look at foreign policy specifically as an angle, and you watch some of the things that he's done and some of the rhetoric that he's made, it can unnerve you. And it's understandable why. Uh, David, uh, I mean... 
you know, uh, he's come under a lot of fire. They apparently totally overstated their success with Kim Jong-un, a very dangerous dictator. We're talking about nuclear disarmament, so it's it's not a joke. Uh, he seems to love Vladimir Putin. Does this worry you? Greatly. Uh, it's completely incongruous that the United States president uh, would have better, at least public relations, with the leader of North Korea and the leader of Russia than he does, at least again publicly, with the leaders of Great Britain, uh, with Canada, uh, and with Germany, to name a couple of countries. So that juxtaposition of the American president purposely picking fights with America's closest and longest-standing allies, while on the other hand um, investing concerted amounts of his own personal time, and literally in terms of traveling to the to meet uh, with the Korean, North Korean leader, as well as the efforts of his staff, uh, are really hard to rationalize with any, you know, so Michael said maybe there's a, a legacy-building aspect of that. Sure. Uh, the other part of the legacy is that I think uh, he's on track to do more to undermine the Western security architecture that America largely led and built, um, and had been very short order than uh, any American president previously. Uh, including George Bush. I mean, the, one of the ironies here is that for as much as... He's uh, making Bush time, look good. <laughs> in, in lots of different ways. In lots um, of different ways. And is there a danger in really overstating his success with Kim Jong-un? While Kim Jong-un, there's, there's no indication that he's giving up anything. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right if you look at it that way. Um Look, I, I'm not terribly surprised. Everyone knew that there was a major risk when you meet someone like Kim Jong-un or you meet the leaders from North Korea who have backtracked on previous quote-unquote agreements with the United States in the past. And everyone remembers the pictures of Madeleine Albright meeting with uh, Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un's late father, you know, smiling for the camera, meeting different things. Miss Albright was stating that, well, you know, it's imminent before Mr. Jong-il meets with Bill Clinton, who was the U.S. president at the time, and then within a few days or about a week or so, it was all scuttled. This is very typical, unfortunately, of relations between the U.S. and North Korea over the past few decades. But look, I think that Donald Trump was right to at least meet with the North Korean leadership. I mean, there was a major risk, but I understand why he did it, and it sort of reached a point where you couldn't step back. You had to at least show your face, speak to him for a bit. And Donald Trump, to his credit, or at least to some of his advisors' credit, suggested to him that he make these comments, which he did, where he said that, look, I'm going to put my best foot forward and try my best with the North Korean leadership. It may work, it may not work, and if it doesn't, at least we tried. So he gave himself a very early out, even before he had ever actually stepped foot in Singapore to meet with uh, Kim Jong-un. But at the same time, yes, I think people, and David sort of alluded to it, this is a, a U.S. president who doesn't seem to be very astute when it comes to history, when it comes to politics, when it comes to foreign policy, or just understanding how the U.S. or, or basically understanding what the U.S.'s role should be in international affairs. And he is more than willing, you would think, to break up some of these powerful alliances, including NATO, if he doesn't specifically get his way, be it with defense spending through GDP or a whole swath of other measures that will obviously come up during this conference or summit and then other things. 
That's the real risk we have with Donald Trump. He is not a conventional politician. He is not a conventional U.S. president. And quite frankly, he's just not a conventional person. For that reason, it makes it very difficult to sort of understand what his next move will be, or even current moves, and to understand where he actually feels or what, where he actually wants to take the United States in the coming years. Okay, and that, let's, and that's uh, a big problem. Let's take a call from Jay in Toronto. Hi, Jay. Hi, how you doing? Fine, how are you? Very good, thank you. Uh, love your show, Olivia, and you've got Thanks. some interesting topics and uh, panels. Thank but, you. Uh, a couple of comments, if I may. Sure. Uh, with Donald Trump, um, Trump is Trump, and uh, he has a tendency not only to discredit himself, but he doesn't remember that he's discrediting the uh, presidency or the seat of the presidency and his own country every time he reneges on a deal or changes his mind or whatever. Um, with regards to the NATO, uh, Canada should be giving more money to the, uh, the NATO, and I see that Donald Trump wants to kind of disband it, but when he points a finger at Putin and says, you know, you're a bad boy type of thing, there's three fingers pointing back to him, and I'd almost want to believe that he's in Putin's pocket, too, because he seems to be going that way with talking to we're, we're, I think we're losing you, Jay. You know, uh I know some people who are, I would say, almost conspiracy theorists, but they they believe that as well, that that there will be very bad things to come out about Donald Trump and Russia. But, uh, Jay, I think we've lost you anyway, so thanks for your call. Uh, yeah. Uh, do you think, panelists, uh, that any of this is a de- deflection from all of that other stuff that Donald Trump is facing, notably the Mueller probe and Russian interference? Well, if you look at the history of the Mueller probe, for example, and you look what they have or have not accomplished, I think many people would actually say that Donald Trump still looks like he's in the driver's seat, with the one wild card being his former lawyer, Michael Cohen, who will you know, eventually talk, will see what he has and what he plans to reveal or discuss, and from there, we can sort of see where things are going. But I think right now that the Trump White House would probably feel that they may have the upper hand when it comes to Russia collusion, just because the tie really hasn't been properly established, or at least not properly established beyond people who worked for Donald Trump, like Paul Manafort, but directly to the U.S. president himself. If that line is ever drawn, then everything kind of changes. But do these serve as a distraction of sort? Maybe, to some degree, but on the other hand, I think Donald Trump sort of looks at this as being like reality TV. He's the virtual president. He can basically control anyone, including the media narrative. He can control political parties who oppose him, or even his nominal supporters, or people he's supposed to be aligned with, that being Republicans in Congress, by basically throwing out trial balloons and trying to change the the story or change the, the narrative as often as he possibly can. But no, I think some of this is actually what he wants to do, and I think this is some of it. Some of it is also what some of his senior advisors would want as well, Libby. But there are a lot of people around Donald Trump who worry when he does things like this. One has to assume someone like, say, a John Bolton was, pro- was obviously not happy that Mr. Trump ever met with Kim Jong-un in the first place and probably is worried about any sort of a statement he makes about NATO because Mr. Bolton is pro-NATO and has been pro-NATO his entire career. But other than him and a few others, I think a lot of people now realize that unless you are willing to go along and agree with Donald Trump every time he takes a step, 
you will be, you know, you will look, be looked at as being disloyal. You will be looked at as a person who should not be in the inner circle, and you'll be tossed out. So oh. it's a question of whether people are willing to march along with Donald Trump rather than marching in lockstep with him. And if they're willing to go along, which most people are right now, or at least until the midterm elections later this year, then that's really, unfortunately, the only thing that's going to happen in the U.S. for the foreseeable future. Okay, we've uh, got to wrap things up. So, David Perry, what would you like to leave us with on this? What do you think the outcome of this meeting will be? I would wonder whether or not uh, the president's approach uh, in kind of going after all of the, or not all, a lot of the people that are America's historically and still today closest allies, uh, whether or not some of this thing is going to fall out of it. When he sent a letter criticizing Canada for not meeting the 2% of GDP pledge, sure, he's not the first American president uh, to do that, although he's certainly the, the least diplomatic and the most impolite. Uh, when he, a letter was sent to the uh, Prime Minister May in the United Kingdom uh, criticizing them for, even though they meet that benchmark, uh, the United States calling them out for not doing what they see as being enough. I kind of wonder whether or not that might be taken as a signal by some of the other allies to simply say, well, to hell with it, uh, we're going to get criticized no matter what we do, even if we meet these commitments and targets. Um, I think it would be a valid position for a lot of leaders to take to simply say, what could we actually do to not get criticized by this president if he, so, if he happens to feel like doing it for any of the reasons that Michael was talking about? Okay, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you so much to David Perry and Michael Tobe. If we couldn't get to your calls, remember, Free For All Friday is coming up. That's all the time we have for Fight Back for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.